Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Inside the Archives. I'm your host, Marty Rosenbaum, XRT's digital content producer and all things social media. If you haven't done so yet, you can subscribe to Inside the Archives on iTunes. Search our podcast in the iTunes library, leave us a rating and a review, and find a full list of every single episode we've released thus far. Today's episode is a part two of a two-part series exploring guilty pleasure music. For those of you that haven't listened to the first part of the podcast, what I did was pull our social media followers on Facebook and Twitter to tell me who their favorite guilty pleasure artist was, and we received a wide variety of responses. I believe we got over 225 unique responses in total, and it provided a fascinating look into who our listeners consider guilty pleasure artists and what guilty pleasure music is from that standpoint. So part one of this podcast focused on that study trying to see what kind of trends were developed in there, if there were certain overlapping artists that fit that mantra, as well as making a little bit of commentary on why Guilty Pleasure music exists in the first place. As a reminder, if you want to listen to part one of this episode, you can listen to us on iTunes, Radio.com, or find us on 93XRT.com. Just search for Inside the Archives on all three platforms. Part two of the episode will expand on the why behind Guilty Pleasure music where it comes from, how we're influenced by our social surroundings, how it exists across different genres, and various other factors that contribute to an artist being labeled a guilty pleasure. Today's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Nicholas Wallen, Associate Professor of Music at Lake Forest College. Dr. Wallen holds his Doctor of Musical Arts in Conducting from University of Minnesota with a secondary area in music theory. Some of the courses that he teaches at Lake Forest College include Music in Chicago, Perspectives on Music, and the History of Rock and Roll. So I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Wallen. Dr. Wallen, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Marty. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for joining us. So we'll begin with the 20,000-foot view on Guilty Pleasure Music. What is it? Well, Guilty Pleasure Music, as you explored in the first episode, is this, this music that absolutely brings us joy, and yet somehow we might be a little bit embarrassed by it as well. And so... For me, there, there are a number of things. Some of them are similar to what your, your listeners were talking about. Certainly, you know, Bee Gees and ABBA and that sort of stuff uh, brings me joy. And, and I'm a little embarrassed, you know, to tell my students that I might be listening to that on a Friday night. <laughs> well, there's an interesting quote that I pulled from a Yale professor who did a study on guilty pleasures. And this was all spawned from... One of his uh, one of his coworkers eating a chocolate bar, who said, "I should not be eating this," but had so much joy while they were eating it. And it was Professor Ravi Dari said that appealing to negative attribute that is connected to positive feelings can be much more effective at persuading people than directly talking about positive attributes. In this case, we're talking about music. In his case, he's talking about a chocolate bar. But that being said, when you explore the negative 
association of an artist, of a music, of a certain song, why does that draw people and give them pleasure? I think sometimes, you know, in, in terms of taste, and I've learned a lot about taste from teaching my students over the past years, you know, they, they love to have taste that defines them as an individual. Um, you know, to to feel like you've discovered something, you you're listening to something that makes you a unique person, uh, and a lot of the guilty pleasure music it somehow is this very popular music that lots and lots of people like, and so I think some sometimes it's just like it it brings us pleasure because the music itself might just be catchy for whatever reason. And yet somehow we think that it's that it's so popular, it's not it's it's not appealing to us as individuals. On the other hand, you know, nobody wants to feel like listening to music is like eating spinach or or you know doing going to the gym and getting a workout, right? You know, um, and sometimes the stuff that that people tell us is really good for us to listen to, just like eating the chocolate. You know, it's like I want to eat chocolate. It might not be the healthiest thing for me, but there's there's the counterbalance between what's good for you and what you really like. Right. Well, it fills a certain desire and it fills a hole that you may want to have filled right. at that point. Now, you mentioned uh, prior to us recording that you're a classically trained musician, but you do have guilty pleasures. Yes, uh, for sure. I mean... You know, you go to go to school as a as a classically trained musician and go to graduate school and earn graduate degrees in conducting orchestras and things like that. It's almost as if, perhaps, to some of my friends from graduate school, every time I listen to something other than classical music might be a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, does does music have to have a profound experience or impact on you? I think. Uh, that's a goal for me as a performer as and as a listener. Um, I want, I mean, when I conduct orchestras, I'm hoping for three things. You know, one is I want the audience who's actually there listening to the music to, to feel inspired, to have an emotional connection and reaction to the performance. I hope, as the conductor of the ensemble, also that the members of the ensemble themselves, the ones who are making that music, are having some kind of emotional um, response that has impact. And then, last but not least, I would like to have that myself as, as one of the performers, as the conductor of the group. And so I'm certainly aiming for that all the time when I'm conducting. And that's a, that's a fascinating point because you're really trying to appeal to several different groups of people, you know, yourself, as you mentioned, uh, the orchestra, you're trying to lead your vision and communicate that with them, but also the audience as well. What are what are some of the challenges that come across with that? Because you do have a vision of how you may see it portrayed or how you may want people to take it, but that may not often be the case. Right. I, the The number one goal, certainly, and it's in that order, right? Um, the, the number one goal is that the audience have the biggest reaction, you know, um, especially if I'm conducting a professional orchestra, people are paying money to be at the concert and I want them to to have a response. I want them to to learn about the 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 composer of the music and to have some thought about why the composer wrote that music and what it meant for that composer. Um, 
and then for them to have a reaction, whether it's exactly the reaction I expect them to have. I, I never presume that I know exactly how someone's going to react to the music, but I try to program music that I think people are people going to like it. You know, I want people to enjoy, um, but it's not always pleasure. Sometimes it means you have to explore different things. Uh, you have to explore grief. You have to explore loss. Uh, or you can explore triumph and celebration. Right. Well, and music taps into so many different emotions for people and can fill whatever type of feeling you have at the time, too. Oh, it can it can amplify what you bring with you to the listening experience, for sure. So circling back to the topic of guilty pleasure is when, when you bring something like that up, as an artist, they may have a totally different feeling in mind when they're writing a song that ultimately becomes a guilty pleasure song. This could be about a, a terrible breakup, something horrific that happened to them, but yet it comes across as this wonderful, joyful, happy thing, as we've seen on so many occasions. It's fascinating. Yeah, one of the things that I was really surprised by with your study was I mentioned that some of these things are sort of common guilty pleasures that I that I really understand as guilty pleasures too, you know, ABBA, Bee Gees, Madonna. Um but you said that somebody had Bob Dylan as a guilty pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, and to me, it's like Bob Dylan is one of these sort of intellectually sort of stimulating artists, right? You know, Nobel Prize winner in literature. You know, it's like one of these things that you don't listen to as a guilty pleasure because you listen to his voice and you think it's it's an acquired taste. Right. So it's it's just phenomenal to me that that people's reactions and people's tastes can vary so much. Right. And there's almost a certain level of seriousness that comes with listening to an artist like Bob Dylan, um, something where it takes a little bit more attention. Um, there's a lot of underlying themes and motifs that come in his lyrics that you really have to look out for. Um, and it's, it's, it's just fascinating to see how someone may view that as a guilty pleasure association. Right. Because most of the time when I think of my guilty pleasures, I think of not wanting to work quite so hard to enjoy the music (laughs) to make it pretty easy on yourself absolutely so how do you think a song gets a guilty pleasure label uh i think it's you know it's it's related i think somewhat to sort of the ease with which it goes down you know i mean it's like you mentioned i I remember you mentioned uh, mambo number five Mm -hmm. um you know it's like that's a that's a very very catchy tune um and i think I i think people end up calling it a guilty pleasure because they decide over time that they actually don't think it's all that great, but, uh, but they like it anyway. Right. So from Mambo number no. five is a great example because that comes on and everyone knows what it is. And poor Lou Bega is going to be associated with that for the rest of his life. But from a listener standpoint, you have that ease of listening that comes along with it. Um, but also the catchiness, the whole you know structure of the song is very straightforward and easy to listen to. Do you find that pop music is more geared towards that guilty pleasure label, or does that expand into other genres, you know, classical, rock and roll, jazz? I think that the pop elements, and even when I talk to my students in history of rock, you know, you can listen to a rock tune that has a lot of sort of pop characteristics. I mean, the number of times that a hook or a chorus or something like that ends up getting used, it can turn a rock tune into a tune with more like a pop sensibility. Um, and that kind of, you know, I mean, uh, repeating, repeating baseline or repeating, um, hook of melodic line or lyrical content makes it catchy and easy to listen to. 
Right. Well, are there certain structures of songs or certain themes that you see within, let's say, some of the guilty pleasure artists that was brought up in the first part of the podcast um, that you can get it almost to be formulaic, that there's a scientific equation to figure this out? Uh, I would say so. And uh, you could you could analyze the form of a lot of those guilty pleasure tunes or sort of other what for me is a big guilty pleasure is sort of like Nashville country of the 1990s. Uh, and a lot of the biggest sort of catchiest great hits from that time all have the exact same form. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Wait, what, what, what does that entail? Uh, there's there's a, a contrasting verse chorus form that involves a pre-chorus that also raises the energy. So when the chorus comes in, it's like particularly anthemic. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they have a little bit of a bridge. We you know bridge provides contrast, uh, but it all if if the bridge is there, the the chorus and the pre-chorus come back at the end. And the number of times that you repeat the chorus at the end of the at the end of the tune helps to instill that feeling of, again, that sort of more pop anthem kind of uh, understanding. Right. And almost like it serves as a group sing-along. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. The, the, the more often you hear any of those hooks, the more often you hear the, the chorus or any kind of a tag, the easier it is for everybody to get in on it. Um, and, and then it, it can it can get into that popular sort of guilty pleasure status really pretty quickly. And have you found that structure of that type of music to be consistent over time? Um, you know, whether it's contemporary music or even looking back into 70s with artists like ABBA. Uh, yeah, for sure. And even if you go back to early, early Beatles tunes, you know, from the early 60s, uh, and you can look at, and I love the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, and that is not for me a guilty pleasure in <laughs> at all. <laughs> you know, that is a pleasure, a pure pleasure. Um, but you listen to some of their earliest music, and it's it's got this relatively formulaic uh, contrasting verse-chorus form. Mm-hmm. Now, as it stands, we've talked about pop music a lot as guilty pleasure, but bringing up the Beatles, an artist that you know I love as well, are adored by many that are seen as pleasures but not guilty pleasures. Um, they were one of the first bands that really took over and became you know a social phenomenon that extended just beyond music. Artists today have followed that type of formula, um, and over the past fifty years, we've seen plenty of artists seemingly take over from a social standpoint. You know, how much of it is the music that really creates that reaction or how much of it is our immediate environment that stirs and makes this thing bigger than anyone can really ever dream? All of the different things that go into making something popular um, are <laughs> I, I, so, so many different things that we could study in terms of how a group becomes popular in in a particular social circumstance. The thing about the Beatles is that they are absolutely not one-hit wonders by by any means. Uh, the way that some other sort of overproduced popular groups were at the time, you know, contrast the Beatles with um, the Monkees, right? Who who would have been a completely sort of produced element by the music business, by the recording industry, by by media. Um, and they they didn't have the same sort of staying power that the Beatles had because what the what the Beatles had in addition was 
uh, that ability to to evolve and to go through with rubber sole and revolver and get into Sgt. Pepper's and and begin to create um, a more lasting musical legacy. Right. And what I find interesting about them is they're able to transcend generations. You could play Hey Jude for someone who is five years old and they'll recognize that tune as opposed to someone, you know, Terry Hemmert, who's on the air right now, is you know a Beatle fanatic and uh, got drawn into radio because of the Beatles. Um, but I always find it fascinating how certain groups like that can cross uh, different generations. Yeah, without question. I mean, my my two sons are both middle schoolers, and they love the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Now, we were talking before the recording about how rock and roll does have guilty pleasures associated with it. And it's interesting because in a lot of my research, I found that it was focused on pop music, looking at artists like Lou Bega, Madonna, even Lady Gaga to an extent – associating those artists as guilty pleasures or feelings of negativity, yet that does exist in the rock world as well. Um, how do you think a guilty pleasure is different in rock music and pop music? Well, or in, is there a difference? I think the, the big thing is, through the history of rock, there are many times where um, the, the music itself is something new and it's something revolutionary. It's something that your parents don't approve of. Right. And um, but at a certain point, if enough people start to really like it, it becomes popular and it becomes mainstream. And and in some way, it loses that same significance. And this has happened. This happened in the in the 60s. This happened in the 70s. Even when you think about the punk movement and and punk becoming uh, more mainstream at a certain point or, you know, being remarketed as new wave music, um, Whenever it becomes a little bit too popular, um, for some people, it loses authenticity. And when it loses authenticity, I think that's when some people begin to think about it as a guilty pleasure instead of as, as uh, an authentic sort of rock experience. And that, that's got to be something that varies from artist to artist and even genre to genre. Yeah. And, you know, we study in the 80s, we study the music of Madonna and we study the music of Michael Jackson and the way that it grew from a, you know, traditional rock uh, family tree, if you will. And yet uh, it, it was we don't we don't call Michael Jackson the king of rock. We call him right. the king of pop. Some of the artists that were brought up in the responses were artists like Hall and Oates, um, you know, artists that are still active to this day. But seen, and I apologize if I offend anyone, as legacy acts, you know, very much fitting a certain window of time for a certain age group. Yet they're seen as guilty pleasures, and some people responded saying they're guilty pleasures back when they were listening to them when they were young. You know, why, why is that? And how do, how do artists not only get those labels, but have it stick with them for the remainder of their career, even if they aren't producing music that's anywhere remotely close to what they originally did. Yeah, I think Hall and Oates, or I want to say that you mentioned uh, Huey Lewis and the News. Mm-hmm. You know, also sort of along those same lines. Partly, their their music was a little bit, um, if you will, regressive at the time that it was made. It, w- it wasn't on the cutting edge um, when it was brand new. And so I think it's easy for people to think of it as, as, as a guilty pleasure because it wasn't as, as popular as it was. It was already sort of looking backwards in some hmm. sense. Hmm. So you're reactive instead of proactive. Right. Writing the music. Interesting. And, and 
for some people that is a, that's a that's a marker of sort of inauthentic rock. Right. I, I read in a lot of interviews with artists who make a quote unquote conceptual album, something that is vastly different than what they're used to or what their audience is used to, and they describe it as a forward thinking album or you know it's a common term is I want to take this in a new direction. Yet that doesn't get as vilified as someone who's regressive and saying, I want to go back to what was popular five, six, seven years ago and just continually hammer that home. Um, why, why do you think there's the difference in criticism there? I think that it can be accepted to want to challenge your listeners a little bit, although you can get in trouble with that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about Radiohead at the end of the 90s going into the 2000s, um, with what they were doing with Kid A and OK Computer, and some people absolutely destroyed them for changing their style so much from what they had done on Pablo Honey. Um, so for some people, it's a mark of being sophisticated to try to challenge your listeners, and some listeners want to try to work hard to understand how their favorite artists are evolving into some kind of conceptual sound. Um, other people... Don't don't want to take that journey. Hmm. Well, it's interesting you bring up Radiohead uh, because it's a very clear cut example of someone who went from one album for a very specific type of sound to the next album completely different. Where had you played them side by side for someone who's never heard the band, you'd be like, these are two totally different artists. Another artist like that that comes to mind is Arcade Fire. You know, recently their album Everything Now had a lot of disco pop tinges where they came from the more anthemic rogue orchestral version on their earlier records and they got slammed by some critics online saying they're taking this in an awful new direction can artists who decide to change their sound be labeled as a guilty pleasure even if their work was commonly accepted that's a good question i it doesn't seem like it's going to be the most likely kind of guilty pleasure to me at least with this theory that i have in terms of how it how it builds up um for me it's a question of do we trust these artists to to evolve and to uh to produce the art that they want to produce uh which can be a really risky thing of course in a combustible music business Mm -hmm. well and it seems that uh wanting to take those chances you'll get an inevitable backlash of people who are saying go back to the music you used to make or even using the term return to form for an album when they may have strayed off from it originally. I mean, I guess, is there a point where you see, you know, you taking a creative risk and seeing it not received as you had hoped. And then when you do quote unquote, have that return to form moving beyond those two points in time, you know, how does that creatively affect you? It's an interesting question. And we think about, you know, Sometimes our favorite composers or our favorite bands, favorite solo artists, you know, I tell my students all the time, you might have Radiohead as your absolute favorite band, but there are still albums that you like more than other albums. You know, you might love the Beatles and you might absolutely love Sgt. Pepper's and not like the White Album. Um, we even, even for those artists and those creators that, that are our absolute favorites, um, we, we have particular albums or particular things that they did that we think aren't aren't quite up to par with everything else Mm -hmm. so it seems like it's (laughs) on one hand it's good to take risks on the other hand it can be a career-defining move that you took the wrong risk but 
I, I guess my personal opinion with art, if you're not going to take the risk, what's the point if you're going to stay formulaic through throughout your entire career? Yeah, to, I mean, to, again, reveal some of my own personal tastes. If you, if you really like Nickelback, you can uh, keep on listening to Nickelback because it's all going to sound the same. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want, <laughs> if that's what you want. And, uh, well, we've, we've been talking a lot, a lot of music that really just spans the past, I mean, 60 years, almost 70 now. Is guilty pleasure music a recent phenomenon, or is this something that stretches back much further in time? I think that there's guilty pleasure music in classical music, although what surprises a lot of people who don't study a lot of classical music is that up until the, the toward the end of the 19th century, classical music was always cutting edge. Hmm. And the audience always wanted to hear new music. Hmm. J.S. Bach, even writing for church services, wrote new music every single Sunday. Uh, Haydn wrote 104 symphonies because everybody always wanted to hear another new symphony by Hmm. him. Um, And partly it's turning classical music into museums and turning it into sort of... um, listening to things over and over and canonizing the same sorts of repertoire that make people think that people don't want to listen to new music. But that's, in the history of music, that's actually a pretty rel- a relatively new thing. Yeah, well, and that's fascinating, too, because a lot of attitudes that we've been talking about recently have been saying, you know, it may be good to be, have a return to form. Some people don't like that, but it really varies depending on the individual's attitude towards whether or not they want to try something new or just go with something that's familiar. What really spawned that change from class, you know, it becoming commonly accepted for audiences to hear new pieces by composers all the time, as opposed to wanting to hear stuff that artists had already produced? I would say the big thing is, and it's certainly still, I would say, a net gain, but the big thing is the way that the recording industry uh, developed and the the fact that people were able to listen to LPs, uh, I mean, LPs, records, you know, and then eventually CDs, and now all of the music that we have at our fingertips every moment of the day. But as soon as people could buy recordings and listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony over and over, um, it became a much more common thing for people to be uh, performing the same repertoire and repeating the same repertoire over and over. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating because the live music experience plays so much into how we accept types of music. And as you mentioned beforehand, with audiences coming wanting to hear new pieces over and over upon you know the invention of the LP where people can bring it home to them where you don't have to go and listen to something just to consume music. Um, it, it's, that's a fascinating viewpoint. I never thought about that. Yeah. It, I, in terms of the way especially that people have listened to classical music, uh, everything changed once once the recording industry developed. Mm-hmm. And do you find that to be the case when you're um, conducting a piece? Obviously, your orchestra, you've you know, gone through tons of rehearsals with your orchestra explaining how you interpret the piece. Are you trying to give audiences a new experience of a piece they may have heard before? It's possible, of course, if you program a popular piece that people have heard it before. Um, either on recording or even a different live performance of it. Um, Conductors, we're all 
<laughs> we're all uh, sure of ourselves in terms of what our own personal interpretation of a piece should be. So we think we have something to offer there. But a lot of times people have never heard it live. Mm. And when you hear, especially a symphony orchestra live, I'm conducting a concert in a couple of weeks, there'll be 105 instrumentalists on the stage as we perform. Mm. To hear that sound live and to see all these people working together at the same time to produce a very complex sound is a really unique experience, even if you're familiar with, with the piece of music already. So the live experience itself is something that I that I think we can offer e even for, for music that, that audiences have already heard. Right. Well, it places a high value on the experience as well, and I have to imagine that plays some effect in your interpretation and enjoyment of it. Yeah, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's a goal. Well, it's, it's just interesting to hear you mention that because one of – one of my personal favorite artists is Fish, and I love the improvisational aspect, the fact that they won't play you know, a song the same twice over, that it can go in so many different directions. And it seems like it's almost rooted in what you were saying, where you give audiences that new experience. Perhaps it's adding you know, different instrumentalists in, to the composition. You're adding a different improvisational section. Whatever it may be, um, you leave people on their feet and not really knowing what to expect. Um, when it comes to, you know, contemporary music and even a band like Fish or let's say the Grateful Dead, who was mentioned as a guilty pleasure band, why, why do you think some people don't get excited over that aspect or may not be into the idea of having that new experience of something they're familiar with? I think some people, uh, I mean, in particular with Fish or the Grateful Dead, some of the long improvisations are don't don't match up with the style of what a lot of people want to listen to. I have a very good friend who can't who can't really can't stand the Grateful Dead, mm -hmm. nor can she stand Bob Dylan. But um, she she doesn't want to listen to that what that that sort of rambling improvisatory nature. Uh, other people are able to sort of dial in and dilate their time so that 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 expression can really work hmm. well and it's 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 odd to me to hear that associated as a guilty pleasure because it seems like you either like it or you don't it's a very polarizing type of music yeah although you know talk about a wide range of different output i mean is is guilty pleasure listening to some of the early sort of studio american beauty working man's dead or is it listening to a version of dark star that lasts 25 right <laughs> right when you know my entry point to the grateful dead was through american beauty yeah um you know and listening to a best of the disc and i just loved that um the conciseness right of the songs but it also showed off the potential to turn it into something new now if you played a 25 minute dark star that was had a 15 minute ambient section right i'd probably been like i i don't get it yeah i don't, exactly. I don't understand well it. or like you were talking about earlier you play those two recordings next to one another and people might not even know it's the same band. Right. Guilty pleasure music, you know, draws artists from all across the globe that people find guilt in, but it seems like it may be an American phenomenon. Do you think that's the case? Wow. I, I, I'm not sure. Although, you know, listening to a fair amount of Korean pop music for me <laughs> once when I was on tour in Korea, um, that became a guilty pleasure for me for mm. a while. So I know that it can cross 
at least for me as a listener, I know that it can cross those boundaries. I'm, I'm not sure what my, what my Korean friends would say. Right. Well, I was going to ask if you found during your time in Korea, the Korean pop music there was well received, um, you know, by most of the consumers, or if it was something that we associated maybe with like pop music here where, yeah, it's big, but don't, not supposed to like it, but I kind of like it. Yeah, it was very popular while I was there. And, and it certainly, it was everywhere you went. Mm-hmm. And have you found, you know, in your time traveling the globe, that pop music or guilty pleasure music contains the same artists in different areas of the world, or is it more region dependent? Well, my friends, when I was in Korea, did often say to me when I said, wow, I really like this particular artist, you know, uh, when I heard a, a tune, and they'd say, oh, yeah, he's like the Korean Michael Jackson, hmm. you know, and so they were they were translating for me as far as, as how I might understand, you know, at least the, the sort of status of that artist. She's like the Korean Madonna, mm-hmm. um, uh, which helped me, you know, just just sort of place those artists into where I was categorizing people. Right. And when you're listening to, you know, let's say the Korean pop music, are there, do you notice those overlapping themes that we discussed earlier, just in the terms of, you know, the composition of the song? And, you know, you may not understand the lyrical content until you see a translation, but a lot of the overall nature, does it share similarities? Yeah, from a musical standpoint and from a formal standpoint, absolutely has a lot of that, those same characteristics. Hmm. Interesting. Well, as you mentioned earlier on, you know, one of the, courses that you teach is music in Chicago. And this is going to veer a little off topic for you know those, those of you that have made it this far. Uh, we, I did a podcast a couple of months ago with one of our DJs, Richard Milne, who was the host of Local Anesthetic, a music program for over 26 years that highlighted various bands in the Chicago music scene. And the topic of the episode was, what is the Chicago sound? There's such a wide variety of music that comes from the city that we had a really hard time giving it a definition. I'll pose the same question to you then. What is the Chicago sound? Well, it's that's going to be a really hard question for me to answer also because as we've been talking about, I approach things from a from a rock music and popular music standpoint and from a classical music standpoint, you know. So it's like I can think about what I think the Chicago Symphony Orchestra sounds like mm-hmm. because they have a sort of worldwide famous sound as an orchestra. In terms of what we can hear in live music venues in the city, um, one of the things that I like to teach my students about is the rise of Chicago electric blues, um, because I I find that not a lot of eighteen and nineteen year olds know much about um, you know the Chess Record Studio down on South Michigan Ave mm-hmm. and the way that that music developed. Um, I. I think that you can you can hear every kind of music in the city these days, um, and I, I'm not sure that I can that I can quantify any Chicago sound. <laughs> well, you can rest assured we were pretty much at the same conclusion after about an hour of discussion. Right back to square one. <laughs> yeah, if we, I mean, we start to listen to some artists, we're gonna quickly run out of uh, <laughs> quickly run out of sort of critical apparatus for putting them all in one hat exactly well you brought up the chicago symphony having its own world renowned sound and you know that is identified with chicago um you know for those for those that may not be familiar or want to venture into the 
um, classic music environment. Can you just provide an overview of what that is and what makes the Chicago Symphony Orchestra a Chicago-associated sound? The Chicago Symphony Orchestra has been known for their sort of majestic brass sound for a good 50 years, going back to when Fritz Reiner was the music director. And there have been these legendary brass players in the section and trumpet section and in the horn section, trombone section, tuba section. And some of these people have been the sort of most respected brass players and brass pedagogues. Um, And, you know, George Schulte took the orchestra on tour around the world and Ricardo Muti is doing the same thing now. Uh, And people talk about that sound that is so big and rich and and powerful and expressive. Um, And the, the brass... The brass sort of leads the the reputation of the orchestra, but the entire orchestra is is world class. Hmm. How did the foundation of that get set? Because um, it seemed like it's something that is developed over time, but it seems like a radically different idea compared to let's let's just say your quote unquote average symphony, um, where you're putting that whole new element on that. How are those foundations laid? It was laid with a with a a few individual players, and then. Um, Bud Herseth was the principal trumpet player for many, many years. Um, And Arnold Jacobs was the principal tuba player for many, many years. And those two bookends in the brass section became legends. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, more and more brass players wanted to play in the CSO. And obviously they have auditions and and look for people that are going to match their sound and their philosophy um, but you know, that's, that's the tradition that I was trained in also. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's one of these things that not only, not only do I like it because I like the sound, I also like it because that's, that's the way I heard orchestras, uh, as I was growing up. Hmm. How does, how does that affect the way you listen to music then? If that was your, you know, upbringing, you know, how do you, how do you consume music? Well, I mean, a lot of my taste in music was, was constructed at home with, with things that my parents listened to. But, um, you know, there were, there were times when I was in high school and I was geeking out to classical music, listening to a Mahler symphony, listening to a particular recording every single day after school, I would listen to that recording and it's burned into my neurons. And (laughs) every single time I hear that piece of music, I think, Oh, that's not the way it was on my recording that I listened (laughs) to in high school. Um, so it, it, you know, listening to music can have this powerful effect. And I mean, you, it, even from the same standpoint of, of listening to a studio version of a tune versus a live version of a tune, you might, you might hear this band live and not really like them all that much. Because what you realize is you've become sort of conditioned to expect that studio version. Hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's always interesting talking to people about that. You know, do you like the studio version? Do you like seeing them live as, you know, bands that may perform the exact same set list night after night after night and perform it the exact way that you hear it on the album? You can still have those negative takeaways from it. Yeah, as opposed to you talking about Fish, right, where you expect as a listener um, to to be taken to a different place every single night with even even with the same tunes that they might repeat. Mm-hmm. Circling back to Guilty Pleasures, now that you've, you know, explained the what what drew you to music you know what draws you to an artist like you said before like the Bee Gees where you may just want to completely zone out and you've had a long week it's friday night and just let loose with everything as opposed to another guilty pleasure artist that 
may not connect with you. I mean, how does how do, how do how do you connect with that, and how does that gain your favorability? Well, one of the things that we haven't talked about so much, but is guilty pleasures might be associated with a particular person or a particular time, a particular um, place. And uh, when you listen to those things, it, it, you know the power of music. It, it can transport you right there. Um, when I listen to a lot of that sort of more dancey disco 70s guilty pleasure music, it reminds me of fun times that I had with, with my friends and mm. with my sister and with a whole bunch of people when I was younger. Um, and uh, some other music that other people consider guilty pleasure, it, just, it doesn't have those same associations for me. All right. In the world of you know academia, do you find that some of your colleagues share those similar viewpoints, or is this a stereotypical view that you'll be shunned if you're found listening to the BGS or ABBA? <laughs> that that is certainly in the academic world a big part of what makes those things guilty pleasures, um, and especially I would say when people find out what kind of knowledge I have of 1990s Nashville country people are pretty shocked mm-hmm. that that you know the orchestra conductor has that sort of <laughs> sort of hidden knowledge and hidden uh well preference for for some of that <laughs> what what are some of their reactions once they do find out is it <laughs> head exploding or it's mostly head exploding and i never w- i get the line i never would have been able to predict that i never would have mm-hmm. predicted that from from meeting you as a professor and, and learning about studying classical music with you. All right. Well, as someone who's, you know, as accomplished as you are when it comes to just the study of music and the understanding of music, do you find that when people do realize that it opens them up a little bit more and they let their guard down as far as maybe their preferences? Oh, I think it does for sure. And, um, of course that's, I, I want people to, to let their guard down as far as that goes, because, I want people to approach classical music the same way. You know, it's just like, well, you you might really love one composer and not like another composer, and that's okay. Um, Because, like I said earlier, I don't want people to think that going to listen to an orchestra is like eating your spinach. Hmm. When I was growing up, my grandfather solely listened to classical music and would take me to the symphony from, you know, starting at eight years old up until about 13 or so, and I loved it, Um, you know, he, the first thing I remember him playing for me was 1812 Overture. Mm. And it's one of the, you know, probably one of the more recognizable classical pieces. But after that, I discovered rock and roll and went completely by the wayside yeah. afterwards. Um, but there was that, you know, entry point for me and just seeing how well all these pieces work together. And then, you know, I didn't stick with that. Part of me wishes I did because it's just such a broad, um, such a rich history that comes with it and so many different aspects that you can pick up on and just continually going down the rabbit hole. But shifting over from, you know, the classical music to rock and roll, there were, there were, there were never conversations I had with my friends about, Oh, Hey, I went to the symphony last night. It was always like, why, you know, I was listening to ACDC and Van Halen at the time. (laughs) Um, You know, but in recent years I've, developed a wanting to get into classical music and, you know, kind of see the symphony again. Um, I don't see, personally, I don't see a stigma that's attached to it, but for someone who may be wanting to go into that world, you know, what would you recommend as an entry point? Well, you talk about entry points and there are certain pieces of music. 1812 Overture is a perfect example um, that I think are 
very accessible and very dramatic. I mean, you know, quite honestly, I, I use words like rock and shred when I'm talking about classical music, mm. because you can, you can listen to a violinist play the Sibelius violin concerto, and you can think this is, this violinist is shredding right mm. here. You know, I mean, it's like, and I think in the classical world, we need to, um, communicate as far as that goes. And certainly when I conduct concerts, I want people to enjoy it and I don't want them to think that it's fussy. Mm -hmm. um, and I want people to react. And sometimes if they react with applause in between movements, that doesn't offend me at all. Mm. Um, you know, because I figure if people are applauding at the end of a movement, it's because they enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they enjoyed it and they want to let me know and let the orchestra know that that's okay. Yeah. How well do you pick up on those cues, you know, while you're in the middle of a performance? Um, not particularly well, other than in those moments of silence or at the end of a movement from, you know, in the middle of conducting a movement in a symphony. Um, I don't, I, I don't have a very good connection with the audience on that kind of level. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will say to me, oh, did you hear that, that baby crying during the second movement? And I'll say, no, I, I didn't hear it at all because um, I was focused on, on what, what the musicians were, were doing. Right. And I, I would have to imagine that would be difficult to do because you are so focused and intent on the piece and taking the piece to where you want to go that any extraneous surroundings are going to go right over your head or Right. Of course, if it's a really delicate moment in a piece and somebody's cell phone goes off, then you, you certainly <laughs> you certainly notice that. Yeah. Well, that's going to cross genres and whenever it happens. I mean, I saw a video of uh, Bob Dylan who was performing in Austria, and it was a very quiet moment with you know him and his band playing a smooth instrumental piece, and he caught someone taking a photo of him. And he has a no cell phone policy, and Bob Dylan never speaks during concerts anymore, but got up to the microphone and... Uh, Offered to have a photo session with the person afterwards, we'll just say. so. There you go. <laughs> well, Dr. Wallen, thank you so much for coming out today you know, and discussing this. I think one of, the, one of the big takeaways that I've gotten from our conversation and just from researching is that there really isn't a why as to why people like guilty pleasure music. You know, it, Guilty pleasure does have pleasure in it, so it does bring apart a positive association. But as far as the exact reason still seems relatively unknown and I don't know if we'll ever be able to define it. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're right, Marty. The, the important point is the pleasure. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. As I mentioned, Dr. Nicholas Wallen is an associate professor of music at Lake Forest college. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. again to Dr. Wallen for coming in for that fantastic conversation. And as I mentioned before, Guilty Pleasure Music, one of the great unknowns. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, more Guilty Pleasure recommendations, want to yell at me, whatever it may be, you can find me on Twitter at Marty Rosenbaum. And be sure to follow 93XRT on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at 93XRT. 
As a reminder, you want to catch part one of this podcast or you want to find more episodes of Inside the Archives, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. You can leave us a rating and a review and find a full list of every single episode we've done thus far. And you can also find us on the Radio.com app, which is available for free from the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. For 93XRT and Inside the Archives, I'm Marty Rosenbaum. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.